setting up shop. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Setting Up Shop podcast. This is the last episode of season one, so thank you very much for those of you who are still here. It's always nice to know and nice to see. We've had a lot of feedback, um, but as mentioned in the last episode, this is pre-recorded, so we can't necessarily refer to all of the feedback so far. Uh, we're actually recording this on uh, the launch day of the first episode. We've had a lot of positivity, a lot of people following on social media, so thank you very much, everyone, for that. It's going very well, really. Uh, and so we do appreciate that. So with me, Dan from Bevelwood, as always, are Rasmus Lowen, blacksmith from Norway, and Heidi as well, a potter from America. And I need to be very careful how I say potter before it becomes a little bit too Harry Potter um, <laughs> every time I say that. Uh, so yes, apologies please. to that there. <laughs> that This could devolve very quickly if I start going down that route. Um, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about two subjects. We're going to analyse the shop. We're going to analyse the market a little bit. Some of you still might not have attended it yet, but we're going to discuss a little bit how you can work out was the market worth it? And then the most important one that a lot of people struggle with and is still tricky to do no matter how long you've been doing it is pricing your work and actually making sure that you're making money but not overpricing your work so it doesn't sell and all of that kind of good stuff. So talking about was the market worth it, first of all, we, we need to consider, bizarrely enough, you need to consider the costs. So you, you've got the cost of things going, You've got your booth fees, you've got your fuel cost, you've got paid help if there's any involved. There's paying yourself or a salary if you intend to do that. There's also, if you haven't already for the year, you have to consider the insurance that you might well require in order to have a booth there. It's important to consider all of those factors and work out what monetary value that comes down to, because obviously you need to trade that off against how much money you've taken. But I think it's also important to realise that you shouldn't get disheartened if those figures don't, if they don't even break even, mm. um, particularly if this is your first event or maybe even your third, fifth or tenth event. It can be very easy to get disheartened, particularly at the end of a long day and you kind of, you realise how much you've taken. Raz, can you remember your first market? Can you remember the, the, the first market you attended? And uh, knowing you, you probably did really well. No. <laughs> well, I can't remember it, but I know I didn't do really well uh, because I... Early on, figure out taking notes was a really good idea. I think I checked this not too long ago, actually. I think I sold for maybe, maybe it was 200 quid or something at the first market. And granted, like I didn't have many things. I didn't have very high quality things. And I suspect a lot of the people who bought things from me bought it out of pity more than admiration. But yeah, I did go to a market and did sell things. And like the cost of me getting there was I had to carry a box for 400 meters. I mean, that's quite a low cost. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, any, any profit is good profit in that case. Yeah. And 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Especially when it's 200. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What about you, Heidi? You remember your first one? <laughs> I want to say my first market, I learned a lot because I was just given a table. Mm. You know, that's all I had was a table. I didn't have a table covering. I didn't have uh, any kind of merchandising, branding, nothing. It was just, oh, here's a table. You can hang out with the rest of the crafters at the show. Yeah. Everybody's table looked the same, you know. Right. Everything just kind of laid out on the table and um, flat. And I didn't have business cards. I didn't have a card reader to take credit cards. I was cash only. But it was affirmative about what my product was like people were excited about what i had to display but it definitely was one of those things where it was just kind of like hmm yeah yeah this could look better and i could have better results if i invested in this but uh, i don't know if this is the avenue i want to go into you know so that's quite interesting because given your day job background which is, is a large portion of that is about dressing things to sell. It's really, really important for people to realise just because you might do a day job the way you, you do a lot of that that you're really good at, more often than not, when any of us come to like the side hustle that we're trying to improve, 
we don't we don't want to do what we do in our day jobs. So we, we kind of sometimes forget the basics of what we we might normally do where we go like, oh yeah, wait a moment, we actually have mm. to dress this up. We actually have to like make this look good. So my my first market, I had a I had a borrowed gazebo that was really dark green. So everything inside it was dark. A borrowed table with no tablecloth. I think I did put like just a white tablecloth on it and I had like seven pieces and they were all led flat. So it was really sparse looking and I made one sale 10 minutes before the end of the market. Basically, a lady came back and it was a choice between two items that she wanted to buy. She was going to buy one of them, but she couldn't make her mind up on one or the other. And it took me 10 minutes to convince her to buy the more expensive one. (laughs) Um, But she still bought it. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a thing when you, you suddenly the environment you're in is different enough that you haven't considered things. You haven't considered like, oh, wait a moment, if is it going to rain? Is the market indoors or outdoors? Am I going to need something? You know, what time of year is it? Mm. Where, you know, where I'm based, is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold? Is there going to be shelter there? Is there going to be, you know, all this kind of thing. But from regarding whether the markets were worth it, I think all three of us, even on our first market, we learned a lot. Yes. So if you if you think about it as, yes, you're paying a fee to go, yes, you're taking your time to go, but if you think of this as one of your first lessons that you are paying for on the kind of the school of, of starting a small business, then it doesn't hurt quite so much. <laughs> if you consider the things that you learn from it and, and actually the, what you've got out of it and the reactions to your product, whether they're positive or negative and, you know, oh, this thing isn't drawing as much attention as this thing is. And actually that takes less effort. So you can kind of play around with that a little bit. But from the point of view of not just the first one, but moving forwards, and this is a really good exercise to do every market is, was the market worth it? Mm. Um, I'm fortunate my wife comes with me to the markets. Some might say she doesn't have a choice. (laughs) So when we're traveling back in the van, quite often we will have that conversation about how do we think it went? and all that kind of thing and actually sometimes it can be really beneficial even if it's i mean the the first time this happened was when i'd done a two-day christmas market it was my first two-day market it was christmas so i thought this is going to go really well um we broke even with the pitch fee Mm. that was it that was what we took across the two days and it was on the way back from that that my wife was quite surprised that i was quite upbeat because she was like but you've, you've sold hardly anything. This would normally get you down and, and all that kind of stuff. I said, yeah, but I've suddenly realized why marketing is called marketing. Yeah. <laughs> because it's about going to the market and seeing what sells and interacting and building revenue with people. And although I walked away from that market with only breaking even on sales, I made three contacts, including one who then sold me the entire contents of their recently deceased father's yeah. workshop, which actually made me a reasonable amount of revenue across the next six months. And I ended up with more machinery at a very good price. So net win overall, even though that's not what I'd gone there for. So there's definitely something in there to be said about what you come away with and, and you know, those, those other aspects. Don't just focus on how much stock have I brought and how much have I sold. Because I know Rasmus in particular, you have a lot of commissions that you end up with from markets, don't you? And how do you monitor those? How do you make sure that you you keep in contact with those? Well, first off, that is difficult because half the time I forget the conversation, half the time they forget the conversation and they just rediscover my contact somewhere. And it's like, oh, right, I need a blacksmith for something. I am sort of in the fortunate position that I don't really need to hunt those leads down because I have a lot of do already. And also my experience is that a lot of people just come up to me and they say, hey, I have a problem. I don't know what the problem is, but I need your help to fix it because I think it's metal-based. And it's like, good. At least we have identified a starting point. But as soon as you figure out what you need from me, then we can have a conversation. And also, a lot of people come up to me at markets and I go like, hey, I need to have whatever this weird thing is repaired, fixed, or made anew. And they ask for a price. And I was like, I have no idea because I don't know the size or the scope or the details you want, or if this is something that needs to be historically accurate or modern reproduction or anywhere in between. So having them send me an email afterwards, preferably in some cases I've been lucky with, like they have been some kind of contractor themselves or been able to draft 
some kind of sketch or plan for me, I mean, that's brilliant. And I can give them a fair discount on the price just because I don't need to spend hours talking to them and figuring out how to make this thing. Because half the time, like, even if it's just like a cardboard template of the fireplace they need the fireplace screen to go to, that's like, excellent. That solves a hell of a lot of problems for me. But having them email me back, and especially if they are able to tell me like, hey, we talked at this market. Like, it might have been a year ago, it might have been three years ago, but we talked at this market. I think that's really beneficial because it gives me that little bit of reassurance that even though I might not have made money, maybe I even lost money at the market on the day, long term, I'm making up for it. Not only in the potential direct sales afterwards, but there's also the benefit of people recognizing you year after year and then buying things the second time around. Well, I mean, once met, never forgotten, Raz. But <laughs> other than that, yeah, that's... Um... As some very valuable points, understanding where your sales have come from and starting to keep records of metrics. And certainly, like you say, if you're in a fortunate enough position where you, mm. it's not that you need the work, that you never turn down work, but it means that there's that level of commitment that they're serious if they're the ones taking the step to email you. Yeah. And also a good reminder to make sure you've got business cards so they'll find it on the fridge and remember that they exactly. need to speak to you. And I also actually, I realized I had my notebook laying next to me for some odd reason. I was just like looking around, I was like, I thought I left it somewhere. And this is the notebook I bought when I started going to markets and it goes back to 2017. And for the first year, I averaged less than 200 quid a market day. So some markets were two days and I made more on those, but per day, less than 200 quid for the first year. Okay, so that's really important. How do you know that you made less than 200 quid a market day? Is that because you wrote it down? Because I am an obnoxious person and I wrote down the item I sold, the quantity and the price for every single thing. Yeah, excellent. For every single day of the market, because then it's also know like, oh, Fridays are always slow, but it picks up by Sunday or Saturday evening or things like that. And it's also really nice to sort of go back and like, People want to invite me back to market. I can look at this history and say like, no, actually my time is worth more now. And this never really made even or barely broke even. And now I actually want to get paid a salary to stand at these booths. Okay. So what Raz has just brought up is something that I still haven't quite started doing well enough yet myself, but is very important, which is you, you will end up, unless you're exceptionally busy, you'll end up with a lot of downtime at a market. Yeah. If you've got a notebook and a pen, or if you've got an, an app on your phone that you will pay attention to making notes of literally almost keeping a diary right what's the name of the market what's the date what's the time of the year so you can like even if you write a note on there saying really cold yeah you know like we're we're talking frozen here people are not coming out then you know it gives you an idea or really hot or whatever but then making a list of every item that you've sold and the price that you've sold it at. Now, some of the card payment machines, if you've built an inventory into that, you can do it that way. So you And you can register whether it's paid cash or card and you can generate whole spreadsheets of data for that. But equally, he's now just been able to look back through the one item, the one place, and will be it very analog and he's able to compare, you know, various things. And you could then... And I'm sure Rasmus has, knowing what he's like, <laughs> put all of this information into a spreadsheet and you can then you can do then do whole comparisons month on month, year on year. And like he's just said then, oh, Fridays are always quiet. Hmm. How do you know that information? And this is what shops do. So speaking from my retail background, you, you can do a quarterly comparison. Oh, well, January, February, March, our sales were really bad compared to October, November, December. Well, there's a big shocker. Mm. October, November, December, you you know, you've got Black Friday and Christmas. January, February, March, you've got people recovering from Black Friday and Christmas. Yeah. You don't compare those to those to each other, but you would compare them year on year. So what was January, February, March like last year? And you can do the same with markets. So if you've got one market that you can you plot the data in for each month and you can see it's got a downward trend. There's two things you can do. You can change what you're selling or you can stop attending the market. Because if you change what you're selling and the continuation is still on a downward trend, then you know it's definitely, it's not you. There's something that's changed at that market. Maybe there's four other people selling the same kind of stuff as you, but they're doing it cheaper. Mm. So don't waste your time, go somewhere else. But this this can lead into the other thing, that something that we'll just touch on very briefly that I know Heidi is exceptionally good at. And that's the element of stock control and understanding how much stock you've got before you get there and then how much you've got after and what the implications of that can mean. If you don't mind briefly summarizing what is going to be a very large subject that we can probably talk about in the future. 
it really <laughs> comes down to what material you have on hand and what you can make for that event. If you're doing seasonal stuff that you can year over year kind of house some things, you can make some extra, have that in the background. But knowing what you have on hand year over year or month over month that you can keep bringing to shows is really important because you aren't over making things that aren't selling and having to use your, I mean, storage space for me is very, very important and very, very minimal. So I don't want to be keeping things and making extras of those things that I already have on hand if I don't need to. Uh, the app that I use is Square. I have photos of every single thing that I make, and then I have quantities in there. I update my quantities when I um, give things away. I update my quantities when I add inventory. Um, if I have something break, I go in there and I remove it. It's all electronic. It's really nice. They don't charge you like Etsy every time that you make a change to it. It's all built into the e-commerce platform that I use, which is called Weebly. And I can use that in the field too. So if I have somebody else selling for me and they have the, the app on their phone, they can see my inventory, they can see my stock. When they make a sale, whether it's cash or card, which is nice about Square too, is that it's got the built-in card platform, is when they make a sale, when it's something that's in my inventory, they can just go in the app and it will automatically reduce out of my inventory. Mm. And I can put in there low low quota counts. So if I get below a certain number of items that I know are hot tamales, you know, those things that sell at every single market or that a bunch of shops are ordering batch from me, I can just go onto my app and say, oh yeah, I definitely need to make, you know, 12, 24 or whatever my increments are uh, and get those restocked in my space. Now, I know not everybody likes technology, um, but that's how I do it. It's really changed how I do my business. It's also changed how I work with other stores. For instance, if I'm at a show and someone comes to me and they're like, hey, do you have 10 on these on hand? I'd like to have them for my shop. I can just quickly go on my app and be like, yeah, I've got 10 I can give you just to test out in your shop. That's great. You know, just having that at my fingertips versus like what I was doing where I was manually filling out a spreadsheet or I did have a notebook that I was filling in. That does get tedious. And I hope that wasn't too long for you, Dan. No, no, that was absolutely fine. That's perfect. And um managed to cover all the, the different angles as well, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's it makes a difference when you start getting to the kind of volume of stuff that both Rasmus and Heidi are doing compared to the kind of stuff that I'm currently doing. You need to have that system in place. So if you can start doing it early, and this is a reminder to myself as well, if you can start doing it early and get in the habit of doing it, then it's going to be so much easier when you are, you know, if, if you need a software to help you or, or whatever the system is, finding a way to be consistent with that will also make you look more professional. You know, like Heidi said, if someone approaches you at a market and says, have you got X amount of these in stock? And you're like, what you see is what I've got. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, there's potentially someone there who wants to buy, you know, quantity. And the other one being is what would the wholesale price be? You know, things like that. Not necessarily a conversation I'd have out in the open at a marketplace. Maybe suggest, hey, we can have an email discussion about this to make it more formalized. But that's that's definitely something to to consider being able to offer, you know, making yourself professional. If we move on from that then to talking about pricing your work, because a lot of this has crossover. And there's a reason why we've kind of left this to the last episode, because a lot of people get hung up on pricing and they forget that they need to do all the other stuff to get people to buy it so let's say you know you've done your thing you've got your sexy looking market stand you've got you know you've got your colors correct you've got all of your business cards you've got all the different stuff at different heights uh, your name stands out you know people are going to come to your stand and you've, it's all well labeled with your pricing but there's still a chance you're going to make no money if you haven't worked out what your costs are going to be this is a large and potentially controversial subject because <laughs> everyone will price things differently and people have many different tactics. You can stack them high and sell them cheap, but you can be, to quote someone I know, a busy fool 
doing that, but it is generating a lot of turnover. Or you can price things really high and you don't sell that much, but when you do, you're, you're making a reasonable amount of money. Trying to fit somewhere in the middle of that is obviously ideal, but let's just run through a list of, of some of the things that would be you've got to consider when we're talking about costs, okay? So the obvious one to start with is raw materials. Whether you're talking wood, metal, or pottery, what whatever it is, you know, clay, sorry. What, whatever it is that we are discussing, fabric, anything like that, it's raw materials, there is a cost. I personally will buy an entire board of timber and... I will then, you can either work it out by cubic sizing and you can be, you know, hyper mathematical about it. Or what I tend to do is literally draw it on pencil and go, right, I'm going to make 50 items of X out of this and then just divide that that price by 50 and then make a note of it and say, right, the cost per wood of me making that item is this. Mm. And that's my starting point from that. After that, you've got to remember, first and foremost, this is so important, you're paying yourself, Okay. And you're not just paying yourself so for, for one process. So, for instance, I, I will speak from my experience and I'll, I'll let the other guys speak again in a moment because I'm talking far too much this episode. There are a number of other wood turners that I've spoken to about pricing and they say, oh, well, that only takes me 15 minutes to turn. So it only costs X amount in my time. But they've forgotten that they've had to drive to the store to buy the wood, drive home again. Then they've had to process the wood. All of that is is paying for your time. You've then got to pay yourself to market it, whether or not that's just loading it onto Etsy or taking a photo or whatever it is you're doing, or even if you're doing none of that, but you're just physically going to a market. You need to remember that you've got to pay yourself. That's the whole purpose of this endeavor is to get your stock out there and to pay yourself. So all of those things add up. I'm not suggesting that you've you've got to add that value onto just one item. You, You can spread it across. So if I'm taking that board of wood and I'm cutting it into 50 pieces and that takes me an hour let's say okay well my hourly rate divided by 50 Mm. and that's an element of the cost that I'm then adding to that piece of wood as well as the time it takes me to turn it into something and everything else so it's really important to remember to pay yourself for your advertising time for your 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 travel to get materials and all of that kind of stuff that's a couple of things we're going to just sort of guess down the list. Uh, Raz, what would be uh, something else that you would suggest we need to remember to consider? Well, in my case, fuel for a gas forge is a big one that I need to add on. Yeah. And electricity would also go into that. Yeah. So power, fuel, you can also add into that temperature control. Yeah. And I've called it that rather than heating because whilst Rasmus might need heating up, others of us might need cooling down. So we'll call it temperature control, <laughs> you know, workspace environments you're more often than not going to be either moving a lot and getting hot or sitting very still and getting cold. Mm. So there will be an element of having to pay for some form of temperature control and power. That's definitely there in fuel. Another one then, Raz? Consumables is also a big one. Okay. Elaborate. Well, I mean, in my <laughs> in my world, that would be anything from files and sandpaper to belts for the grinders, wear and tear and yeah. equipment as well, to some extent. Yeah, I mean, if if some equipment you're using have bearings that you know you're using that machine hard, they need to replace every three years, five years or something. Yeah, I mean, at some point, that's a quantifiable cost you can add into everything else and say like, per hour shop time, I need like ten cents or whatever put aside just for bearings for this machine. Yeah, well, it's it's also that leads on to the fact that you've got to buy the machine in the first place. That helps. It helps to have the machine first before you ruin the bearings of it. Yeah. So you've potentially, and I appreciate for some of you, you might be saying, oh, hang on a minute, I don't need a machine, whether it's a sewing business and you've got your sewing machine and overlocker or, you know, whatever it is you're doing, there will still have been an initial cost. And as Raz has said, like there's potential for spares and repairs needed or servicing on some of that kind of stuff. All of this is a business cost and worth considering. Heidi, hit me with a couple that you think we might have uh, not covered yet. Well, the material we've talked about, we've talked about paying ourselves, we've talked about waste products. What about the transportation of your product from to and from your events? Yep. You've got to have a vehicle that has the ability to carry your work. For us, we invested in a truck when it became t- necessary to do so. Yep. So that's part of our breakdown. Could that be better rephrased at just the cost of sale because it could also i guess be packaging to ship things out well yeah 
But uh, packaging packaging can fall under marketing and branding, can't it? Depends on how you do it. Oh, yeah. But, but all of this, but all of this, you know, regardless of what what label you want to put it under, mm. all of this needs to be considered. Another one, if you start getting really serious and you want to edge this towards a business, is waste removal. Yes. So I generate a lot of wood chip and shavings, but nowhere near as much as I would do if I did it full time. Currently, I can get away with palming some of it off on relatives for composting or like you know some in my own garden or whatever if i generate as much as i predict i'm going to in the future uh there's a you know there's a real concern about do i have to pay someone to take this waste away mm. or do i have to look at suddenly investing in other machinery to then try and turn it into another product that i can sell if i can compress it and sell it as fire bricks that's future thinking which will Again, talk about another time, but certainly waste removal, that kind of stuff. Uh, Raz, you know, you'll end up at some point with, with I hate to say it, but scrap metal. No, no, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, suppose the beauty of, with yours is there's always the opportunity for you uh, to trade that back in for some of the better stuff. Yeah. As much as I say that, it'll all just end up being Damascus canister, I know. but That's um... another bad word in my business. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I'm into lucky position that I deal with metal. Metal have scrap value. Yes. Uh, a lot of the roses I make are cut from not not only stainless, but acid-proof stainless. 316, that's the correct... Some, some numbers, it. yeah. We'll believe <laughs> yes. you. Uh, which, uh, last time I went to skip with it, they had a scrap value of two quid a kilo. Nice. Whereas normal steel, I think, could be closer to... Yeah. I mean, a, a 10% of that or something. Uh, copper, I don't do a lot of copper stuff, but every once in a while I use it, I have it... Gathering that up, I think currently that's six quid a kilo or something in scrap value. Yeah. Aluminum is also a big one. Look at the look on Heidi's face. Heidi's like, yeah, clay doesn't have a scrap value. That's just, <laughs> it's just, it's, it doesn't need to. No. <laughs> I can reclaim it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm basically the only mug here is what we're hearing, everybody. is uh, I'm, I'm the one who has the wastage that is genuine wastage. But I also have a wood burner. Mm. Oh, that is nice. Yeah. That will burn sawdust and therefore affects the temperature control in the wintertime. Very handy. <laughs> but runs into problem with storage when you store up 20-odd bags of uh, sawdust. <laughs> so, yeah, um, PPE is one we haven't discussed. All your personal protective equipment, um, well worth bearing in mind. Rent, at the moment, I think Rasmus is the only one who actually has to pay rent for his workspace. Yes. But he's also the only one of us who's full-time doing this. But that is a consideration that you have to put in there. And a really big one that is one that so many of us forget is profit. Mm. Yeah. We don't want to just break even. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. You, it's really easy to forget that you've got a factor in profit when you're, when you're ad working out the cost of your items. So if you break it all down, let's take a, an example of a widget, we're going to call it. A widget, you can work out all of your costings of all of that kind of stuff. All right. And let's say for the sake of argument that your total cost comes to five pounds. All right, because you're able to make these really economically in big batches and whatever else. So if it costs five pounds, you've then got to work out what you want to sell it for. So when it comes to adding your profit margin, this is really important. You need to, at this point, work out, do I want to sell this potentially at wholesale at any point? Or do I only intend to sell it for myself, retail? Because if you only ever intend to sell for yourself, then you can always work on a smaller profit margin. Uh, which makes it easier to fall in line with if anyone else is selling widgets. But if you want to sell wholesale, then it's always better to start with a bigger profit margin so that you can build in one so that there's you're still going to earn money if you ever wanted to sell wholesale. Uh, will you guys agree with that? Yes. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a pause there, Raz. <laughs> no, uh, it's just like, when do we sort of talk about that you need to earn enough to invest in yourself and the business again. Oh, I don't even consider that. Is that in profit or is that margins outside of that again? I would argue that's probably part of your profit, but that might be a whole other... That might be a can of worms you've just yeah, opened Yeah, that's there. what you do with yeah, your Yeah, there profit. we go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's how, however you want to spend your money, yeah. you spend it. But I, I would say like your first few years of business... You, your aim is to have net yeah. zero, right? Mm. Like you want your profits to go right back into the business aside from what you're paying yourself hourly so that you can record a wage, right? Because that's not profit. No. 
That's an hourly wage that you are paying yourself out of your business. That's not profit. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about profit, that's all of that added on to what you would need to charge to be net zero is your profit. So if you are reinvesting that money, say it's just you, you're reinvesting that money back into your business so that the next year you can be more profitable or you can do your work faster or less wear and tear on your body or a better vehicle or you know better materials. That's where you get to make that decision for yourself and for your business. But I I just want to keep repeating mm. that paying yourself a wage is not part of the profit. That is part of the expense yeah. yes. of doing the business. Profit is profit. That's like everything after. And this is why Heidi is much more successful at this than I am. <laughs> uh, because I still have only paid myself once in 18 months. Now, the reason why uh, is because I still have a full-time job. I can afford not to pay myself and I have made the choice to put all of that money, even though I've allowed for it in the costings of the products, I've chosen to put all that money into buying better equipment or more machinery to make things more efficient, invest in nicer timbers, which might generate more revenue, basically to experiment and product development. That's a choice that I am in a comfortable position to be able to make, but that's not a, something I will be able to continue doing in the future something we haven't covered by this is the fact that there are always costs of selling so if someone pays for something on a card you will have to pay a fee mm. that's how the card machines and the card companies work that fee might be 1.4 percent or something like that but you need to be aware of it if you're shipping it who's paying for shipping well you can charge them directly for the shipping but you've got to also think about how long is it going to take you to pack it what are you packaging it in how are you getting it to the shipping place all of that kind of stuff you, you've got to remember transaction fees and shipping and packaging and everything else and there's no such thing as free shipping the cost is somewhere yes and i would also add on there's also the cost of returns and the cost of replacement of a product if it's faulty or it's broken in transit so there's margins for that as well that you need yeah, to put in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly if you are going down the route of, of all that, that shipping kind of stuff. I feel like we've made this really scary. We have made this really scary. <laughs> like, no, you need to cover all of these things. There are so many things you have to think about. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't need to think about all of them. I don't. The, just, just to dial this back a little bit, when I started doing this at a more serious level, I just recalled what my teacher was taking for his hourly wage. And I just started there just to pretend like when I was quoting something, even though I had no real experience in figuring out what time it would take to make something, I guessed and I hoped and I stuck at his level and said like, well, he's professional. His rate should be fair. Okay, I'll hope that I can do it at that level. And it took me a while to get to that level and also to learn how to quote things correctly to the right time. But I also have because I've done different things, worked a little bit uh, behind the bar. And as a part of the education there is a cost multiplier. When you sell a drink, the cost into the bar is X number of quid. And do all of the fancy maths you can do with marketing and knowing your expenses and all of that, they know that every customer coming through the door on average buy two drinks. They estimate X number of customers during the week. So they know that to make money, they need to sell X number of drinks total to all of this. That multiplier, they just figure out the multiplier. They cost, take the cost and just multiply it with whatever number they need to reach that equilibrium between cost and expenses due to market research. So I just did that for a lot of things as well. Just figured out like, well, my hourly wage should be maybe 30 quid because Norway and all of that. Well then my shop rate should be at least twice that, maybe three times that. And then as you start going through all of these numbers, you get the bills, you keep track of things. Then you can go into minutia and figure out and adjust things like, oh, well, for a while and currently my rate is relatively cheap because I've been lucky and got a good deal on it. I might get materials very cheaply for a little while, but that's not going to last. So you need to keep track of things and need to sort of adjust your numbers accordingly as well. But just as a starting point, just 
get some kind of multiplier that covers your bases and a little bit extra. Yeah. And then suddenly everything is so much more easier. It's not that much big scary math. Mm -hmm. It's just some basic numbers to get started and then you can delve into it. Yeah. And I mean, we've not set out trying to shock people. No. And we've not set out trying to scare people. We are here to help. (laughs) (laughs) We are here to help. Uh, We're also trying to just make you consider all of the things that, a lot of things that we didn't necessarily all realize or think about or consider or go oh yeah i've made this much money and then all of a sudden the the money that comes in is less because you go, why is it less oh wait there's a transaction fee and it just kind of can go from there we'll quite happily share on here as an example of of a widget so if i make something and i intend to wholesale it i will work out my cost fee and then i will add 60 percent onto that Mm. and then i'll add 20 percent onto that figure so the reason why for the extra 20% is because that that's the tax yeah. in the UK, even though I'm not registered as VAT, because if I'm going to wholesale it to someone, they will have to charge tax most likely. So theoretically, working that all out, I am able to then decide whether or not I want to make 20% when I wholesale it, or if I want to make 30% when I wholesale it. That's a whole conversation that you can have with whoever it is you're wholesaling to. As long as that product still sells for that, the overarching price, at retail, you're making a lot more profit. At wholesale, you're making a lot less, but you might sell more units. So you've, you've got to consider that. There's, there's no point making a product and then realizing that, to, to use your point, Rasmus, if your mentor or the teacher used to sell a product for £3, but you can't make it for that amount of money, mm. but you also know that people won't pay more than £3 for it because he was the top end of what he used to sell, yep. there's no point saying, well, mine needs to be £10 because it takes me longer. What you need to do is pay yourself less money yeah. and sell it for £3. So you you can work backwards and kind of say, right, what's, what's the market standard for a handmade, not bought-in mass-produced product? And then work backwards from there and say, can I make it for that amount of money and make a profit? Which can be harder, but it can also drive you to, to become more efficient and work out how to, to save on costs, but not not uh, reduce quality. So if we're talking about pricing and simple calculations and everything, there is nothing quite simple. But Heidi's going to step in now. The other thing that I, I've heard from... And I think this is special for like our type of people, right? Like makers, is that like... Well, I don't want to overcharge somebody. Like, I feel bad. I don't know that mm. my stuff is worth that. I don't know if I'm skilled enough to charge what so and so is charging because their stuff, I'm comparing myself to them. And that's a problem that other people don't have when they have a business. Yeah. Because they're not emotionally invested in what they're making and they don't like it's not an extension of their worth. It's not an extension of them. So it's it's easier to set a price mathematically where you're like, okay, this costs this and this costs this. We have a lot of emotional equity involved in in how we set our prices. So one thing that I heard recently on another podcast, I can't remember who said it. They were like What I do for myself is I look at the math and I get the numbers from the math. And if I'm feeling good about the number, then I increase it by 10% Mm. because I need to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then I know that I'm actually making what Mm. I should be making off of the piece. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, it's it's like those kind of things like... It's going to be different for everybody. Some people are like, no, I'm good at being greedy. Like, it's no problem for me. But (laughs) 90% of the people that are in this community are people that would just give their stuff away, right? Yeah. And that's why having a business that's your making business is sometimes more of a challenge for us because we're so used to just like giving our knowledge away and giving our product away and, you know, it's okay to feel uncomfortable about selling something, but don't feel so uncomfortable that you aren't making your ends meet. Yeah. Is, is basically what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but that, and that's very valuable actually because um, like the plates that I sell, I could realistically sell cheaper if I never wanted to wholesale them. Hmm. And even at that cheaper price, I felt a little uncomfortable, but it was only after advice from other maker friends that made a big difference to the way that I retail them. So we'll, we'll put this as a, as a 
concept because most of the people who are listening to this podcast are unlikely to be my customers. Okay? Unlikely. Not entirely impossible, but unlikely. <laughs> Bevel.u. <laughs> if I sell a plate at a price that begins with 20, okay, psychologically, your brain will always say 20. I, it, it doesn't matter what the number is after 20. If it's 21 or 29, mm. you see 20 and you think, oh, that's cheap. Like, I can afford 20 quid. What's 20 quid? It's not a huge amount, particularly not in the UK at the moment. 20 pounds, if you're lucky, you might buy three, maybe four drinks at a push in a pub. Okay, 20 pounds is not a lot of money. Therefore, because it's not a lot of money, they've not put a lot of time and effort into it. It's not valuable to me. It's not a high-end product. If the price starts with 30, all of a sudden, although it's not really a lot of money, but it's more than just casual change. I'm having to think a lot more about the type of product. So maybe I pick it up a lot more. I look at it a lot more. Oh, actually, I can see the value. I can see the amount of time and love and care that's been the craftsmanship that's been put into this piece. So now, actually, maybe I will consider this more. And actually, no, I'm, actually, do you know what? I don't even deserve this. I'm going to buy it as a gift for someone because I can see the value of this. But I know that I wouldn't treat it with enough respect. So I'm going to buy it and give it to someone else who I know will. There is a reason why most things are priced with a 99 at the end of it mm. okay it's it's a really easy and long proven kind of thing if you if you say something is 29.99 we all know it's 30 pounds less a penny yep but you even yourselves you'll pay it and you're like oh it's 29 pounds and it's it's this weird little psychological thing so whether or not you hate the concept or not and it doesn't look as clean on your little pricing tags i would suggest play with it experiment over your first few markets and put some out that say 29 pounds and some that say 29.99 and see if it makes any difference at all to your customers because if it doesn't what that 99p does is help cover your extra costs and your card fees i don't do that on purpose <laughs> i don't either <laughs> uh, and, and like for me it was a thing in the beginning of I didn't want to have to deal with a lot of cash and a small currency cash exactly change yeah yeah so uh, and then also, it's at least here in Norway, because, I mean, roughly speaking, the Norwegian crown is about 10 to 1 to the euro, the dollar, and the pound. It's not exactly. But in my mind, when I'm doing the figures, that's where I'm going with it, because it's kind of there. That means that if I were to charge something for 99 Norwegian cents, as it were, it would be 9 cents in quid. It just wouldn't have enough of an impactful value to anything as well like yeah the shops do that still to some extent but also we have basically abolished the use of cents in shops at this point like it doesn't really exist because it turned out with inflation over the last probably 20 years it just doesn't hold any value there's so many jokes about the norwegians giving up cents <laughs> well including common sense you would probably say <laughs> uh but and also it's also the thing of kind of the rebellious streak in me saying kind of saying like all of the corporate stuff are trying to nickel and dime you for everything. So I'll keep it simple. So I'm putting mine up in uh, basically in whole tens in Norwegian crowns. Yeah. Yeah. Which will be single pounds or something just to make everything easier because that's, that's the kind of person I want to be. Just to say this is the honest price of it not trying to push you and nudge things to get a bit more margin out of it. But that's also, as you've highlighted, that's a cultural difference, which is really interesting, which is one of the reasons why yeah. we, we've got the, the whole thing there with the, you know, the, the different continents that we're all on. Because yeah. in the UK, I've, I've definitely had people query about the fact that mine are two are rounded pounds. Mm. And I did it initially because I didn't want to carry the spare change and I've now just not changed from that. But I am also seriously considering doing it because people stop looking once those first two numbers and that little dot has appeared. Yeah. It can make that little difference. And I mean, by all means, these days, especially in Norway, it doesn't matter because we are all contactless now pretty much anyway. Yeah. So I could charge whatever funny number I would like. I can charge like <laughs> 69 for everything if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, that's probably been very, very not helpful overall for everyone with, <laughs> with everything we've covered so far. No, no, not specifically what you were saying, Rasmus. I think we've, we've probably scared people, spoken loosely about profits and, and things like that. Um, let's talk a little bit about discounts. Mm. 
I think it's I important like to talk about discounts. We all like them as customers, definitely. I like them as a business. Okay, excellent. Heidi, go. Yeah. So what's really exciting is when you start doing newsletters and you can incentivize people joining your newsletter by giving them 15% off, 10% off, whatever, 5%, whatever you want. Make up a number, 69, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> we'll just go with that theme now. Um, so what benefits my business model is that I am doing batch work and I am making multiples of the same thing for the same seasons that everybody celebrates in our country, right? So like... Most people in the United States are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving and they're going to be celebrating Christmas. They're going to be selling, uh, celebrating Easter, Valentine's Day, Halloween, you know, whatever, you know, is out there. And what is exciting is like I'll do some early bird stuff or like pre-order where I'll give people a percentage off knowing that I am selling them directly. Like if I'm thinking about the wholesale model where I give my product to a store and they mark it up 50% what my wholesale number is, I have 50% margin that I can play with to give my customers for coming to me directly, mm. which is a lot more fun and equitable uh, for me to get the maximum amount of profit off of something that I'm doing as a series versus me just selling to a store. So most of my stores... They're ordering specifically what they want, right? They're ordering something with their logo on it and the style that they want. And this is an opportunity for me to make something that I want to make for myself to push myself or, you know, work with my creativity. And then I'm giving an opportunity to my friends and family, my my customer base to pre-order with a percentage discount. That percentage discount doesn't hurt me. It actually helps me. And it makes them feel really excited that, ooh, I got, I got a little extra. Uh, I got in early on something, you know, those kind of things, which builds, you know, this bigger story and more excitement and everything. So that's why I like discounts mainly for my business outside of like the, I don't do discounts at shows. I only do discounts through my web marketing. That's really interesting because I've known you'd said in the past, you don't do discounts at the shows. So when you do get customers who say, oh, do you ever do discounts? That's where you can go, yeah, if you sign up to the newsletter, hmm. like, give me your details, let's expand the reach, let's, you know. It's a very odd thing in a way how we've gone to a digital age, everything's digital, everyone's got a phone and all the rest of it. And yet one of the most powerful selling tools in retail today is a newsletter. Yeah, it's funny, right? The difference being, <laughs> difference being is it's hmm. now an email. Right. But five years ago, if you if you'd said to me, oh, well, you know, newsletter marketing is going to be this big thing and it works really well for small independents as well. I'd have been like, don't be stupid. People get fed up of emails. People get fed up of, you know, all this kind of stuff. But people enjoy getting something that other people haven't. And if you sign up to a newsletter of this small person who does their handcrafting thing that you really respect and admire, and then that person's going, hey, if you, you know, you sign up to this, then you get pre-knowledge, you, you, you know, you get the early release stuff, you get the deal, you get the, all the whatever it is. And it's not, it's not trying to con people at all. It's sharing your story with them. And it's a powerful thing. So it's definitely something worth looking at. From the point of view of discounts at a market, I personally will take so the last one that I did, I took some prototypes along with me that I decided I, I wasn't going to make. They're finished items, but they're not going to ever become something else for the brand. And they were unbranded. And I sold two or three of them at a reduced price. It created revenue. It paid for the materials and the time that it had taken me to make them. Someone's gone away happy with something different and unique that they know will, they'll never get. You know, no one else will have that again because I'm not going to make it. But it's also clears out space in the workshop that otherwise some of that stuff might just end up cluttering or, you know, you, you don't. Like in my case, I can't quite bring myself to burn it because I've taken time and effort and it's a finished product. <laughs> but I will discount those items. Or if I've built enough margin in and I want to sell, for instance, a set of plates, a set of plates will be cheaper rather than buying individual ones. So that's the way that I would potentially do discounts or margins. Just discounts, not and margins. Raz, you uh, had a thought you wanted to chime in with. Yeah, discounts for me is kind of the same as the way you're both doing it. If people, I mean, I'm not doing wholesale things a whole lot. I've done a couple of shops and it's not really worked out as well as I would like so far. But I also haven't been pushing the business side of all of that. 
which I might be doing come this winter, but that's a different story. For me, it's more of uh, there is a cost of dealing with each customer. There's a cost for me to package things and send things out to the website and all of it. And also there's a cost of having this item on the shelf for a long period of time and not getting the money back for the time I spent selling it or making it. So for me, it is worth something to have that bit of extra turnover so that I can take the money I spent on it and make someone happy, but get the money back and spend that again on making something new. Yeah. Because for me, it is also that piece was a part of a process of becoming better at making it. So the first 10 roses I made took a certain amount of time. The, like the next 100 take less time and so on and so forth. So like the investment of, in myself, just making more of them is worth something as well. Yeah. In addition to that, like as you say, you have margins, you have profits, you have all of that. And that's after you're paid yourself. So I'm quote unquote not losing money by giving up my margin and some of my profit. I am just making slightly less in profit to invest directly back. Mm. But if that the opposite of that means that this item is staying on the shelf for an extra year, yeah. then it's better to actually, at least I think, to get it out to people and have something new take that place that might be better and might sell easier. It's also it, it's not just getting it out to people, but if it's you know, if you've got stock on the shelf that's been there six months. Remembering how to make that yeah. gets harder and harder, even if you make notes. So actually, if you give things, and all of us sell things that don't have a shelf life, mm. but if you gave things a shelf life of saying, this stock has got a three-month window or whatever it is, and then at the end of that period, I'm going to sell it on for a slightly reduced price, because then when people go, oh, have you got any more of the X product? Mm. That means you've got to make them again which hopefully means you've improved and you, you can be more efficient at making those and whatever. So you can also use it as a way of driving your skill set and improving yourself as well. I also think it's valid to just, like you said, with demo pieces and practice pieces, like they might not have much of a value to you. And B-Stock mm. that have some flaws in it, some people would be really happy to have those, either because they can't recognize the flaws or they don't care about them because they think it adds charm or whatever other fancy word they want to use for it. Uh, in my case, it's super rustic. Uh, <laughs> but like knife blades that... Like, Emphasis on the rust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, like, uh, for example, is like knife blades. Like, oh, the grind is not perfect on it. I Something is nicked on it. The forge weld shows a little bit. Perfectly good knife. Either I can keep it, give it to a friend who I know would want one of my knives but can't afford the normal sales value, or I bring it to a market like you do, Dan, and I might have a special bin of things like these are discounts or even even better pay me what you want for these but you need to pay me for them just to have a transaction there just to have them value the thing they're getting away with yeah and again you you already spent your time and your materials making that thing so whatever you get back is a bonus as long as it's not costing you a lot to sell it yeah and that does tie into um lost leaders mm. so for those of you who aren't familiar with the term lost leader a lost leader is something that you will sell at either pretty much cost or just above or potentially even making a loss depending on exactly what it is but you know it will draw people to your stand it will encourage sales of another thing maybe you'll do one thing as a loss leader but hey if you buy that it works really well if you buy the second item which has got a higher profit margin on it that there are many different ways you can use that personally i don't make any loss leaders at the moment because I just haven't figured out how to do it cost effectively, <laughs> which I know sounds ridiculous. But, you know, in, in the craft world, that it can be quite tricky. If you've got something you can do as a loss leader, maybe even it's a case of merchandise. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've started getting some oven cloths made with my logo on. Now, they're relatively inexpensive. I've put a reasonable high markup on them because of the value of, of what they are, and that matches in with the brand. But every now and then, if I've had a good customer and they've bought five or six items at the stand, I might then say, hey, let me wrap that in one of these for you. Mm. So I've allowed the value of that to add to their purchase, but it's also created this, you know, I've, I've lost money at it theoretically, or I've watered down the profit across the rest of the products, but it's bought me more favor with the customer and that kind of a thing. Mm. I mean, that kind of ties in a little bit almost with your B-stock there, Raz. I mean, in the sense of yeah, it's not a loss leader as such. You're just trying to reclaim some money back. But certainly the, hey, pay me what you think this is worth. 
uh, which I think also starts a dialogue and a conversation, doesn't it? it it's got to be quite interesting. Yeah, and I haven't done a lot of it mm. because I haven't always had the room in my booth to show off that kind of thing. And I, also... I thought you were going to say it's because you don't make mistakes, but okay. At least, you, at least you're being honest with us. <laughs> Different conversation. There's not enough mistakes. I have kept all of the catastrophically failed knife blades I have kept in a special bin, and I'm going to do a miniature Iron Throne with it at some point. Oh, I love it. <laughs> that, that's like, that's in the works. I just think I probably want to have like 80 failed knife blades or something silly. Uh, but knife blades is probably my biggest lost leader hmm. because there are so many hobbyist knife makers in Norway or knife smiths in Norway yeah. that are retired. They don't need to make money on it. So even if I am selling my stuff more expensive than they do, and even though my work might be higher quality, there's less room in the market for me to charge what I should be paid for them just because the whole market value is so yeah. lowered by these yeah. retired people, which is also why I make less of them because I can't spend the time to make money I don't make enough of. Yeah. And that harkens back to something we've said in the previous episode about knowing your market and knowing what you can and can't sell and all of that kind of stuff. Has anyone got any other comments that they specifically want to talk about on uh, pricing your work and considerations there? I would like to point people in the direction of a creator named Old Forge Creations. He is a potter based out of Europe. I think he's in England. He does a lot of really great tools for people that are ceramicists, but I think that they can be applicable to everyone else. But on his uh, website, Old Forge Creations, he has a spreadsheet that you can download that has different categories for like your different spends to make a product. And you can swap those out. You can edit the numbers. You can edit the values. But it's got automatic calculations in there to create your wholesale price and your final like retail price. And you can set what you want to pay yourself to within that equation. So it's all editable. It's a really great tool. I used it to double check my prices. And... um I really like, it's really nice when I'm starting to come up with a new thing or I'm bringing in a new different type of clay and I don't want to like screw around with my other calculations. It's a really great tool. So I, I wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. It's Old Forge Creations is his website. Mm. That's excellent, Heidi. And that saved us a lot of work because that's what we were <laughs> going to try and recreate to for people to download for the assignment. <sighs> I know, it's absolutely fine. I'd much rather give kudos to someone who's already done all of the work on an Excel spreadsheet than having to try and figure it out myself. Uh, so uh, that's been really efficient and saved me a lot of time. <laughs> but what we can do is uh, we will include it on the website and we'll put a link to his page with that. Um, rather than us trying to create something and redoing work that's already been done, we'll send a link to him there. And so just so that everyone knows, you know, we have not created this. We are We are sharing what he has already created for this purpose. But uh, if we talk about assignments as we, we do, I apologize, I forgot to uh, put the one in last episode. But assignment this time would be to to have a look at that spreadsheet, change the values to what's relevant to you, and to just double check your costs. Just make sure that you're comfortable or, as we've said, slightly uncomfortable with what it is that you might have to charge for it and um, and do an element of that overall. So before we finally close then, as I ask each time, what's the one thing, guys, that uh, you have done this week to step closer towards your end goal with your business? We'll start with you, Heidi. Well, we got back to work on the studio, Ooh. and that's super exciting. So Ben finally delivered the vanities to my brother that he was working on that was kind of holding up our ability to work in his shop. We He has a very, very small area in our basement, so it's very difficult for him to have like these big vanities that he was working on and then also bring in some like two by sixes and stuff and cut that to size. So he's out there. I don't know if you've heard any of the banging and, and things, but um, he's out there right now putting up the um, the rafters and extending them down so we can put the insulation in. So big things happening. We're a bit behind schedule because of some injuries and, you know, the shop space not being available, but we're back on track and I'm super excited for that because more space means more product and that's super exciting. Awesome. Raz? Did I mention the hammer in last time that we had it to forge? I don't think uh... so. Mention, I don't think so. No, no. No. So long story short, that one of the things I did then is I opened up my forge 
sort of had a small opening by inviting a couple of friends over to forge basically log dogs that we're going to send down to Ukraine with steel that we got from a local steel supplier, got donated to us from them. And we were six people who forged 94 log dogs in something like four or five hours. That was really fun. I do remember you talking about the log dogs, but I, I don't think that it registered with me that it was like going to be a hammer in situation. Yeah. It's fun. Yes. No. So that, yes. So that was uh, sort of a small op- opening of the shop, sort of to the blacksmithing community before I got everything ready. And then Aww. this weekend, I'll have a small, more public, small shop opening for the local community. And hopefully get some more contacts, get some more sales through Congratulations. that. Congratulations. That's so exciting. That is pretty cool. I mean, it's always going to be good. We'll see. But <laughs> I have to express disappointment that you didn't get to 100 on the log dogs between the six of you. <laughs> I mean, ni- 94. I mean, come on. Which one of you counted them and didn't go, well, we may as well just make six more? Well, I had already ordered pizza and it was proper <laughs> hot and sweaty in the forge at that point. So we, we called it good. But I'll, I'll, I'll make up for it. I'll make another six when I have the time. <laughs> now, you've already done more than enough, I'm sure, Raz, because I know this isn't the first time that you've done this as well. So uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just uh, a little bit of a dig. It was just that element of uh, OCD on my head. <laughs> I was like, whatever, really? our goal was 50 and we went to 94. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah I, I completely agree. But all of us were sort of looking at us like, no, we don't feel like it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but uh, honestly, one of the really good things about that whole weekend was that I had three people come back that I had taken classes with me years ago who came in for this. Oh. I had one guy come from the old workshop I used to share with and another guy who is a friend of my stepdad and has been wanting to learn blacksmithing. And he just texted me. I was like, can I be helpful? I don't know anything. And um, yeah, yes, mate, you can. Just show up. I'll give you a quick introduction and forging tapers. And he just did that and was really happy. Excellent. Got some new interesting blisters and all of it. Excellent. Well, I think uh, for myself... Made a new product is probably the closest thing. I say made a new product. I've made a couple of rolling pins. I've made some, as someone pointed out to me, manly rolling pins. Oh, manly. On the basis of the fact that they're they're thicker and heavier and longer than most traditional rolling <laughs> pins. Um, I thought you were going to say they look like a baseball bat. <laughs> not quite. They're manly. Or, or anything else inappropriate. Um, no, they, they were... They, um, mostly have appealed to male bakers on the basis that their hands tend to be larger and Mm. uh, some of them have said oh no that's fantastic because they you know commercially available rolling pins entirely by accident i'd love to say oh i designed it specifically that way i'd spent a lot of time and research um no what it was i had a piece of wood and i i made it round and then um polished it up and sanded it nicely and then it's been a happy little accident, <laughs> much like the trees in Bob Ross. Yeah. Before I clearly descend into uh, hysteria, we better end the episode there. This is the end of the season officially, uh, and the, the new season will be in the new year, because all of us now are going to be very busy with, with seasonal markets. However, what we have decided, we you know, because all of you will clearly be clamouring for more before the new year, we're hopefully going to uh, run a Q&A episode which will be released before the new year we're not going to commit to a specific date we'll announce that on social media at the time so if you don't follow us already then that's a really good idea for you to do that on instagram and uh, all of those kind of places we will be doing a Q&A session so if you want to send us any questions that you've uh, you've have popped into your head during the last five episodes and we will sift through them so you can ask stupid questions if you like but we just might not answer them or read them out Um, but we have no problem at all if people want to do that or anything amusing no dad jokes on this podcast will be read out i'm afraid that is the remit of only other types of podcasts but we will more than happily answer any questions if we feel willing and able to on an episode before the new year so with that in mind uh, we're now going to close up so thank you very much all for listening and for those of you who want to find us, you can reach all of us at Setting Up Shop, S H O P E, and that can be found on Instagram. You can email us info at settingupshop.com. We have the website. Or you can find us individually, myself at Bevelwood UK, B E V E L Wood UK. Heidi is found at Whitehall Pottery. There are an underscore in there, Heidi. I can never remember. Just on the Instagram, it's Whitehall underscore pottery. Mm hmm. Everywhere else is Whitehall Pottery. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, Rasmus is, is found via his name, Rasmus Lowen, L-O-E-N. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Please share with friends. I hope you found it all useful. Hope you find it interesting. If there's anything in particular you want us to talk about in next season in more detail, please let us know. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.